Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Please consider donating to keep this show on the air. Visit patron.podbean.com forward slash writer writer pants on fire or send money through PayPal to Mindy at mindymcginnis.com and let me know it's in support of the podcast. Today's guest is Tiffany Jackson, author of Allegedly. She joined me today to talk about setting goals while in the query trenches and how editors actually make your work better. I usually start by asking everyone about their agent hunt and how that went for them, the query journey, mm-hmm. whatever your background was. I always like to talk to people who had some background and usually different from actual writing is what I have been finding. So tell us about that for you, how it went. How did you go about getting an agent and how did you decide you wanted to be a novelist in the first place? I've honestly, I've always wanted to be a writer. I've always wanted to be an author, even since I was like a little girl. I always tell the story how the first word I spelled was nose, kind of like threw some letters together. And then I like showed it to my mom and said, this looks like a real word. And she was like, yes. And I was like, I'm a writer. Like, (laughs) I queried, I queried like everyone else. When I first was pitching allegedly, Maybe I sent it to 20 agents and I got rejection after rejection. So I challenged myself. I decided that I was going to query a hundred agents. If after a hundred agents, I didn't get picked up, I would revisit the novel. I wasn't willing to just throw it in the ring of self-publishing. I firmly still believe in self-publishing, but this was one of those projects where I was like, no, I do truly believe it belongs in the traditional route. I made this grid of a hundred agents and I put them in like tiers of agents, checked off like, okay, I, I sent it to this one and I need to follow up in two weeks and three weeks and four weeks. I sent them partials. During my whole like process, I was actually looking at this site called Adventures in Agent Land. I decided that Oh, well, let me just pitch her. That was Natalie LaCosal from Bradford Literary Agency. She picked me up. She was agent maybe number like 19. At that point, I actually had three other offers. I really love Natalie. She seems, and she still seems, super Mm -hmm. smart, very invested in the industry, has a lot of great ideas, and she grounds me a lot. She's seems hungry, which is one of the things I really wanted. I wanted an agent who was definitely out there and it was hungry. It wasn't too lackadaisical. I hear a lot of like agent stories where it's like, oh, I emailed my agent two weeks ago. I'm still waiting. And I'm like, oh no, I I can't. My nerves, we can't take that. My agent is wonderful. If I email her, I always hear back that day. Even if I say something stupid, which usually is. One time I uh, emailed her because I had put a container of yogurt in my pocket (laughs) with my coat pocket and I had forgotten about it and I tossed my coat somewhere and then I sat on my coat and then I got up to leave put my hand in my pocket and I was like what is this substance (laughs) like I was just completely I had this moment of tactile confusion oh my god warm by then and I was just like what there's a melted organ in my pocket I don't know I needed to share that with her and I emailed Adrian and she emailed me back and she was like thanks for that email that was a great story it was good Wednesday you know and I'm like oh god she'd only been representing me for like a month I was like I hope that that was cool 
she's used to it. I've had multiple conversations with both her and my editor, usually about bodily wounds that I have suffered because I've suffered a few and generally. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, yeah. I'm covered in scars. It's beautiful. So every now and then I'll be like, so I've got the pics if you want to see them. And Adrian usually is like, you know, I'll pass. And my editor is like, yeah, send them. So I don't know. I. To those of you in the query trenches, that's not how you start a conversation. That's for yeah. later. But yeah, that's for later. Much later. Much later. Once you've, uh, you know, had the yogurt conversation, you can move on to, and this is the inside of my arm. <laughs> Which, hey, we do. We share an editor. Yes, we mention. do. Ben Rosenthal is both of our editors at yes. Catherine Teagan Books. He's awesome. I love him. I love Ben. I really I love do. Ben too. I was just talking about him. He's just so super chill. Yeah, he's fantastic. And one of the questions that I get often when I am on panels or I'm speaking to aspiring writers is they say, how much control do you have over your own work? Do you feel like your editor asks for things you don't want? Or do you feel like your editor, your publisher messes with your story? It's like, no. I've had two different editors, actually three now, because I also have a series with um, Putnam. And always, all of my editors have always said, this is your story. I'm just here to help you make it better. And without exception, that has been my experience that my editors make my books better. Yeah. And that's what I really like enjoy about working with Ben is like, it's more of a collaborative effort. Even when I'm like stuck with something and I really am just like, I have no clue what to do next. Hop on the phone and sort of talk it out a bit. Let him kind of digest and think about things as well too, which that's a pretty awesome ability to have. Yeah, I do hear some editor horror stories too, but I hate to say it, but like I just have a great experience with both my agent and my editor. Sometimes I'm a Mm -hmm. little shy to share it with people because I feel bad. (laughs) I'm like blessed that I haven't had that many problems in that arena. Mm -hmm. I do talk about my agent and my editor always in glowing terms, not because I feel like I should, but because it's honest and I feel that way. And I think it's important for aspiring authors to hear that because I know that self-pub has its pros, but sometimes some of the people that make that decision, I think they do so because they have only heard those horror stories about agents and about editors and about Mm -hmm. the traditional publishing route. And my experience has been nothing but beautiful and and so worthwhile in career building. I think it's good to tell those stories too. I really like the idea that you said, I am querying 100 agents before I consider an alternative route. I like that. That was important to me. How much Mm -hmm. do you want it? And I say this to all inspiring writers. How much do you really want it? Are you really willing to put in the work? Querying is a lot of work. It's a whole other second job because you're constantly following up. You're constantly making changes. Some agents in that first 20 batch asked for partials. They asked for holes. And some of those agents I didn't hear back from. And I would follow up constantly every two weeks, every three weeks, every four weeks. I think I got a rejection from an agent after I like already had sold allegedly. Nine months later. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the update. That happened to me too. Here's a question. Did you have any unfinished novels before you wrote allegedly, or was that your first novel? Technically, that was my first novel under my real name. I did actually have two other novels for then that are under a pen name, and they're like romance novels. 
allegedly was a far departure. Self-publishing was a really good lesson as far as how much work you honestly have to do, even as a writer under one of the big five houses. You still have to do the same amount of work, the same amount of marketing for yourself, the same amount of writing and intensity and reviewing. I still find myself doing the same type of work I was as a self-published author. I tell people all the time, self-publishing a book was actually fantastic practice for when I did become a published writer under HarperCollins. I had over 130 rejections for the novel that I wrote before my debut. I've talked about this before on the show. My debut novel was the fifth novel I'd ever written. I didn't self-publish any of mine. I'm glad I didn't because they're quite bad. Um, (laughs) Probably wouldn't have used the pseudonym. I probably wouldn't have even thought about that. And so there would be a really awful, and I mean, I truly am not being, this is not false modesty. They're terrible. I'm glad that I didn't take that route, but I think that it is important, like you were saying, you set a bar for yourself at 100, and as I said, my fourth unpublished novel, which is still unpublished, Hmm. I had, yeah, all four of those are, well, that's not entirely true. I wrote The Female of the Species. It was the first novel that I ever actually wrote. What? Are you serious? Yes, it was, but don't, I mean, trust me when I tell you that the title is the only thing it has in common. (laughs) The concept is there, but, I mean, it's just... I mean, that book was so mind-blowing, like... Thank you. Yeah, I can't even believe that, but I understand. A lot of our best work has come out of several thousand revisions. I wrote, like, an early incarnation of that story (laughs) 15 years ago. I had to wait 15 years. I had to be a better writer to actually deliver that story. But you know what's so great about your book, and and allegedly too, they're very much evergreen stories. Mm -hmm. I feel like those concepts, the messages within both of those books really last. So even if you did write that 15 years ago, there is such a solid message there that like carries on. Like I can see anyone reading this like 50 years from now and still understanding it. That's why I'm just like, wow, I, I that's your first book. Amazing. Yeah. But trust me, if you had read that first version, because I did, I picked it up and after I sold the concept, I picked that. I was like, oh, this is great. It's already written. Right. And I went back <laughs> and I, I actually didn't finish it. I DNF'd my own book. It was so bad. All was unbearable. All the classic mistakes, like <laughs> in everything that they teach you not to do. I was doing them left and right. It was so bad. I mean, the whole, like <laughs> half the book was adverbs. It was awful. Up next, how skills developed working in TV crossed over to writing fiction, how little new writers know when we enter the publishing industry, and how a hurricane made Tiffany go unplugged and provided the backdrop she needed to produce that first book. You work in TV by day, and you have a Bachelor of Arts in Film from Howard University and a Master of Arts in media studies from the new school university. So do you find that a lot of those skills translate into being a novelist or vice versa? There's definitely a lot of similarities, traits that I was able to sort of bring over work ethic, especially Mm -hmm. film. It's very much, especially when you're a struggling filmmaker, you have to build everything from soups to nuts and you have Mm -hmm. to develop characters. You have to, character development is very important. You look at scripts and you look at 
the building of locations differently than normal people. Mm-hmm. People hate watching movies and TV shows with me because I'm like, oh, look at that. And look at the color scheme that they use there. And I get very detailed with it, which is exactly mm-hmm. the type of skills that I end up absorbing and plopping into my novels too. Honestly, the media of film and television, it's people oriented. People really drive novels. And so when you study people, it really does make you a better writer. Mm-hmm. I always say that. Study people, study personality traits, study quirks and everything like that. Add that to your novel because it makes it just richer. What plays on your screen should kind of play in your story in a way. Usually it's the other way around, but because I come from the film and television world, I sort of tend to work backwards. There are a lot of similarities. I still call myself a newbie. I am a debut, so I am pretty much a newbie, but I'm a newbie in terms of to this industry. I didn't know how deep the YA industry went when I signed my contract. That was probably a year and change before I realized, oh, there's Facebook groups with other debut authors and there's conferences for all that stuff. I really, I had no clue. So every time something like cool would happen, they were like, hey, you got the star. And I'm like, yay. Is that, is that good? <laughs> I'm sure Ben like looked at me cross-eyed like, oh, this girl. (laughs) I do still feel like a fish out of water, still kind of grounding myself in it Mm -hmm. and understanding it because I've had over a decade in television. I can produce television and direct films with my eyes closed. It's interesting how the publishing world is so brand new Mm -hmm. to me. It's scary sometimes, actually. It can be. It absolutely can be. I agree with you. Well, and that was your first novel. And your first novel and your first experience, it's definitely overwhelming. You have to learn everything. I mean, it is its own environment. That's for sure. Absolutely. Which I will say to aspiring writers, don't make my mistake. Be so well-versed in the industry, even before you start querying to agent. Mm -hmm. Almost know as much as they know. So when conversations kind of like come up, especially about marketing, you're able to have a real conversation and not learning trial by fire type of thing, which is something I wish I did more of. I wish I really sat down and did as much research as possible before I ever even made that list of a hundred agents. As much as research as I did for allegedly, I should have done as much research into the publishing industry. No one really explains anything to you, and it's not because they don't care. It's just there's an assumption that you already know and that you have done your research. So I've had the experience, uh, like, my first round with Not a Drop to Drink. They're like, okay, and your first pass pages will be coming in the mail next week. And I'm like, great. (laughs) What does that mean? Tell me what that means. Like, there's this whole vocabulary. It's just like any industry, any business There is a vocabulary that you have to know, and no one's going to tell you. Like, there's no starter packet for you. All the training is on the job. Mm -hmm. There might even be questions that are asked of you that you might not understand the question. And it's totally okay to say, hey, I don't know, because I didn't know. I was like, you're going to have to tell me what to do. When I got my very first edit letter for my first book, they were like, here's your edit letter and you read this and make changes as you see fit. They had to explain to me how to use track changes. I'd done CPing with people, like I had critique partners that, but I used like Adobe. It doesn't exist anymore. I forget what it was called, but there was a site where you did all your work like online and um, it was run by Adobe and it was free. That's where I did all my critique partner exchanges and stuff. People are wonderful. Everyone is patient with you. If you have questions, ask them. That's how you learn. I tend to 
be the first one to raise my hand in class and say, well, what does that mean? And I had the same experience when they sent the first pass pages. I was like, oh, is this my galley? Like, I really was like, I had no clue. (laughs) It's funny, too, because when I got my first pass pages, which for the listeners, what that is, is your book designed with the chapter headings and the font that it's going to be printed in. But it's printed out on eight and a half by 11 computer paper, you know, printer paper. And you go through it and this is your last chance. You read it like a book and it's your last chance to make any changes, find typos, problems, whatever. And they always say, please do not rewrite. These are small changes. These are typographical errors. Mm -hmm. These are echoes. If you use the same word twice in a page, try to catch that. But you're not cutting three pages and saying, rewrite this scene and insert this. You're not doing that. That's not what first pass is for. You should have done that before. Your initial response when you get your first pass is to rewrite because you read it and this is your last chance. You're like, oh, I got to fix that. Trust your editor. They say it's good enough. It's definitely a lot of pressure. I will say those first passes were just like, but I just want to change this one paragraph. And you're like, nope, yep. just, just let it rock. At that point, a lot of times people have already read the book. And so then you're cringing because you're like, oh my gosh, misspelled word there. Or like, you know, I use your instead of your. And it's just like, ah, because. Oh, you know, God, I know. Yeah. I'll be like, I, there's not an apostrophe in that. That's <laughs> Because you blurred my book. And yeah. I was so shy. How do I say like, thank you? And like, like, (laughs) (laughs) oh no, she saw that miserable sentence. She's like, she must think I'm the worst writer ever. And like, (laughs) I have never had anything come to me that I read. Never have I been like, why is this published? (laughs) (laughs) That's fortunate for real. Let's talk about allegedly. Yes. Because I love that book and I did blurb it. Your debut, allegedly, came out this year and it was partially inspired by a real life event. So talk about the creative process that you went through in writing it, like from inception of the idea to saying, yes, this is going to be a novel I'm going to write and how you reframed it as fiction. Back in 2012, I was up late, like insomnia or nonsense like that. And I read this case on People.com, I'll never forget it because it was four in the morning and I'm reading like people.com because I have nothing else to read. There was an article about a nine-year-old girl who was convicted of murder in the state of Maine for murdering a three-month-old baby. Uh, Of course, it was controversial, uh, mostly because she was one of the youngest people to be charged with murder in the state of Maine and in the country, period. And the crime, of course, three-month-old baby, it was horrific. But the whole time I was reading this article, I was like, oh, no, there's no way she did this. There's no way. She probably took the L for somebody else. That's what kind of like sparked the idea. I was like, well, what if she didn't do that? What would that look like? What would her life look like years later when she finally is released from prison? And what would that story look like in Brooklyn? So I basically took the case and I was sort of, you know, I kept like thinking about it over and over again. And then Hurricane Sandy hit New York. I live in Brooklyn. The entire city was just manned down. I mean, trains were down. I was off of work for a week and I decided, hey, let me write a novel. So I just went to work. I started writing it because I had nothing else to do. I had just moved into my apartment. There was no cable. There was no internet. Not that anything would work anyway, because after Sandy, there was nothing was working. I basically sat in my apartment and wrote out the very, very first draft of Allegedly. In between that time, I lived very close to the 
Brooklyn Public Library. So, and they were actually working. So I would walk over there and I would do some research. Um, their computers were also down. So all my research, initial research via books, like I was just reading books. <laughs> like, yeah. It's very old school. Like, I mean, I was looking for the card catalog. Like it was just really, like it was super old school. And so that actually made the experience even more like fulfilling to me because uh-huh. I really had to get in the mind of this character and the people around her. I, I wrote the first draft in about a week. I didn't really sleep much or eat much, but, um, sure. bathing is always, bathing, oh yeah, bathing was, bathing was out. No, there was yeah. rarely much none bathing. Yeah. None of that. So it was about 45,000 words at that point. And this was such a far departure from me because it's such a dark book. I finally let my friend read a couple of pages and she was like, oh my God, this is great. She was like, it just doesn't sound like, like a real teenager. And so I decided to interview five teens that had been in the juvenile justice system or had been in group homes to sort of nail down Mary's voice. Talking to those girls really changed and shaped the entire book. I mean, I talked to a lot of lawyers and doctors and psychologists and correctional officers. I interviewed a lot of people over the phone or, you know, in person, but particularly the five girls that I interviewed really shaped the entire story. That was my process. So it started at 45,000 words and just my own writing. And then after so many revisions, stuff like that, I think it's 80 something. First draft, I understand first draft, they change. (laughs) Oh yeah. That's so cool. I love this. I love this idea of you completely uprooted, moved into a new apartment, unplugged and just writing a novel. That's so cool. I wish to try to do the experience again, honestly. I think unplugging is really helps. I mean, granted, after I did get internet and cable and stuff like that, I was still working in television. I was, I think I was just leaving BET. Then I went to Fuse TV. I moved to BBC America. Television is also very an intense job and you're working like 10, 12 hours a day. So in order to fit in my writing and revising time, I had to be a part of the 5 a.m. Writers Club. So I was up every day at 5 a.m. during the weekdays, 5 a.m. I wrote from 5 to 8. Then I would get dressed, try to walk my dog really fast, make it to work by 10. And if I gave myself like a self-deadline, I would write during lunchtime on the train back and forth from the city back to Brooklyn. You know, you just have to like fit in the time in order to make it happen. And, you know, I had like my solid week to myself to write the 45,000 words. But then the rest of the novel took place in the mornings or on weekends. I think it's really good that you mentioned that because so many people say, I don't have time to write. I would love to be a writer, but I don't have time. It's like, dude, nobody has time. Nobody (laughs) has the time. I didn't have time to write a book, but I wanted to. I think that's part of what differentiates between someone who wants to write a book and someone who just does it. You have to say, I will get up at five in the morning to get some words in. Whereas for me, I would stay up late. Like I'm more of a night owl. I'm not a morning person. So I was working full time and I would stay up from 11 o'clock to about one in the morning and I would be up at six and I would do my day and I'd go from work to the gym to, you know, dinner, whatever, and right at night, dead of night. I know many people like you that do it in the morning before their day job starts. 
Yeah, I mean, if you want to do it, you will make the time, but you have to have that drive. The drive has to be greater than the excuses. Exactly. And it goes back to, you know, you need to be willing to put in the work. Querying to 100 agents, you also have to be willing to put in the work to actually write your novel. I know so many writers who are like, you know, yeah, I want to write a book. I just don't have the time. And, you know, I know writers who have full-time jobs with five kids and they're out there writing books. Like they're writing a lot of books. There's just no excuses sometimes. It can be pretty exhausting. It can be hard to explain. You know, I had to explain to my friends, oh, what are you doing on Saturday? Oh, I'm writing. Friends who are not writers, I mean, they're like, yeah. oh, well, you know, you don't need to do that right now. I'm like, no, yes, I do. This is my only time to do it. This party you're inviting me to, it has to wait. I have to decline your brunch invitation. Like, it was definitely a lot of, it was a learning curve for me. I, I'm, have you lost friends during this process? I think one of the things that I learned early on, before I was even published, I was writing for 10 years before I was published, and I had four novels that didn't get off the ground, and it was fine. They didn't deserve to, but I learned how to say no. There are people that are frustrated by that. It'll be like, hey, do you want to run vacation Bible school at church? No. And it's like, you know what? Number one, I don't. <laughs> number two, I would be shit at it. And number three, I got to write. I learned how to say no, and I learned how to not explain myself either. Mm -hmm. Because so often if you say, well, I can't because, like you say, I got to write tonight. And people are like, well, yeah, I mean, it's not like it's a real job, you know. You don't have to write. It's a choice that you're making. So I don't even explain myself. I just say, no. <laughs> there is no recourse to that. You just say no. Yes. Be comfortable in the no, too. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that I learned. Because if you say, no, because I have circuit class on Monday— People are like, well, then one of the meetings can be on Tuesdays. So I just say no. I'm like, no, I'm good. Thanks. Yeah. Lastly, how interviewing girls in the juvenile justice system helped shape allegedly bias in media coverage, Tiffany's upcoming novel, Monday's Not Coming, and where to find her online. Tell me a little bit more about interviewing the teenagers that you met with in order to help frame the teenage voice of the character. Do you think that that fundamentally changed what you already had in terms of the body of the work? I think it did. I truly believe it helped really shape Mary's voice as far as her, what I like to call indifference. Throughout the book, she just sounds indifferent about it all until she's given a reason to sit up and say, wait, hey, she has now just been released from prison and she finds herself pregnant. The state is about to take her baby away because she was a convicted of murdering a baby in the past. And she's like, well, wait a minute, you can't take my baby. And all of a sudden she wakes up and then there's a little fire under her. And so her voice starts to change. When you're given something to really hold on to, you wake up. And I will say with these girls, I wanted to be very delicate when I talked to them. I'm not an expert. I'm not trained in interviewing and therapies. I wanted to touch upon their experiences. And a lot of times they just talked. They were very matter of fact about everything that they said that happened to them or they experienced. I feel like if I was yeah. in their shoes, I would be in tears all the time. I had to sort of, as I like to say, woman up when it came to writing the story because I was like, if they're not crying, then I'm definitely not going to cry. I have no reason to cry. And so that really 
helped me shape it and shape Mary, plowed through some of the more difficult scenes that I had to write as well, too. It was a great experience just talking to them and realizing how how strong they are. Girls are strong. Don't feel sorry for them. Yes, they've had a hard bout at life, but I'm in awe of them all the time. Because the book does deal with issues of race, because Mary is black and the baby that died in her care was white, were you worried about any kind of blowback because of that? I Honestly, I wasn't afraid of any blowback. It was a real story. That's the thing about it. It was loosely inspired by a real case. There was a black child involved and a white child involved. These type of things, they happen. There is a lot of contradiction in the media as far as when they cover when black kids do crimes and when white kids do crimes. It's a lot of bias. I'm not saying anything that's actually not happening. If I was, I would I would understand it more. Or if I was like completely wrong about it. I did my research, my thorough research to make this as believable and honest as possible. Any blowback would be the fact that I'm exposing this world that Mm -hmm. not many people know about and not many people that are in that world, particularly adults, really want out there on pages for other people to read. So if that's the only blowback I get, I'll take that. I'll take that blowback. One of the things I appreciated about the book was that it wasn't sugarcoated. I mean, her life in the foster care system and, and her life before and her life in prison and everything that she went through was very real. And it wasn't, I felt like an antiseptic virgin. This was gritty. This was real. And I appreciated that. It's not pretty. And it's not supposed to be. Some of the criticism that allegedly has had is either one, they don't feel like it's for children, which I'm like, kids know this. And if they don't know this, Mm -hmm. they need to know what their peers are going through. They need to understand what's happening out there. And I'm always a huge advocate of teaching kids what's happening in the now because you snap your fingers and then they're adults. They're voting adults. Mm -hmm. Why would I hide that from them? I actually want you to know so that when a 16-year-old girl is going to turn 18 in a couple of years, they can vote to have policies to help girls like Mary, to help girls that are in a juvenile justice system. They wouldn't know that this was even a problem if they didn't pick up this book. It's a good way to look at it. You have a book coming out in 2018 titled Monday's Not Coming. So tell us about that one. Okay, so Monday's Not Coming is loosely inspired by another real case. It's about a young girl whose best friend is missing, and no one seems to notice except her until her friend shows up a year later. It really talks about community. It talks about the mental health within, like, society. It really touches also a lot upon uh, gentrification in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm excited about this book because I went to school at Howard uh, University, and I lived there for a couple years afterwards. D.C. has its own subculture that no one seems to know about. Whenever I, like, talk to people about it, it's like, oh, I never knew that. I'm like, oh, you never heard of Go-Go? You never heard of slang that they use? It's very fascinating. So I was actually excited to dip into a lot of that. And hopefully I did it justice. So Monday's Not Coming then, based loosely then on the uh, disappearances of the young Black women in D.C., correct? It's a part of it, yes. But there is another case that I uh, first initially started with. I wrote the book, sent it in, and the moment I sent it in, maybe like a month later, that's when 
they started to talk about the disappearance of girls. So it was very eerie to develop this book while that was happening. We made sure to add some notes about that, to touch upon that in some way, to also bring some light to it, which is important because that was something, once again, it's a bias in coverage when it comes to Black children. If there were so many young white girls missing in a city, the whole country was shut down. That's something to definitely take note about. It's interesting you mentioned that the book I'm working on right now is about the opioid crisis. And one of the things that is just glaringly obvious is the um, the racial element of the 1980s war on drugs. We built prisons and we threw everyone in jail and we made all of the punishments for crack and crack cocaine really high. And now all these white kids are ODing on heroin and we're like, let's get you some help. Exactly. I feel the same thing about weed. All of a sudden it's legal and people are having businesses. People in the black community were thrown in jail for the smallest ounces of weed on them. I think there was even a TV show about this white woman who was selling drugs. And I was like, you know, that's very interesting because if it was a black kid, this would be a whole different type of conversation. I don't even think the show would make it on air. I remember that. It It was called Weeds. Yes. It's quite fascinating, the biases and so many aspects of our life. And I like tapping into that. I like poking the bear a bit, getting kids thinking like, well, actually, that isn't fair because you have to start with the kids. You have to. Last of all, why don't you tell us where you are online? You can find me at WriteNBK on Twitter, W-R-I-T-E-I-N-B-K. I'm also on Instagram at WriteNBK. You can also go to my website, writeinbk.com, and send me questions. I love getting questions about Allegedly. There's so many Easter eggs, and I love to see readers find them. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. A special thank you to fellow authors Alyssa Palombo and R.C. Lewis, as well as patron Stephen Avery for helping to make this episode possible. If you find the blog or podcast helpful, please consider showing your support by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash writer, writer, pants on fire and making a donation. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Rider Rider Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist.